Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy with a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you, I tell that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me.
Thanks, Courtney. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it's been written for us and it points us towards Jesus. So we pray tonight, um, help us to see a little more of what he was like and uh, what he is like and the difference that he makes. Amen. Uh, well, let me have my welcome to that of Nick's before. My name's Jeffrey Lynn. I'm one of the staff here. It's great to have you with us tonight, particularly if you are visiting us. Uh, we're just continuing the series as we're making our way through Luke's account of Jesus' life. Can I ask you please to make sure you've got the leaflet open in front of you? You'll see on the right-hand side the Bible passage, and then on the left-hand side a reasonably detailed outline. Uh, oh, question time. Thank you. Yes, on screen. Question time. If you have questions as we're going along, feel free to text your questions in, and we'll get to them at the end of the talk before our final song. Uh, one of the most interesting ways in which a sentence can begin is with, it changed my life. It changed my life. It might have been an encounter or maybe a conversation. It might have been an incident or perhaps a tragic accident. Whatever it is, it changed my life. Now, the passage that was just read has two short episodes that show how Jesus changes everything for us, both when we meet him, verses 1 through 10, and whilst we're waiting for him to return, verses 11 through 27. And so actually this talk is going to be in two parts uh, with a rather direct challenge near the end and a time for quiet reflection before we rush on to whatever next week has in store for us. Point one then on the left-hand side, when you meet him, how Jesus changes everything. Uh, let's work through the first ten verses uh, in a little bit of detail tonight. I'll pick it up in verse one. Jesus, we're told, entered Jericho and was passing through. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Now, uh, you might be wondering what's significant about that. Well, Jericho um, is, quite frankly, it's a nothing town. It's just a little, uh, it's like a truck stop on the, way, on the highway towards the big smoke that is Jerusalem, which is where Jesus is going. And so therefore, he has no plans to stop in Jericho. He's just passing through. Except on this day, something grabs his attention. Uh, or more to the point, someone. Verse 2, a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Verse 2, meet Zacchaeus. Now, Zacchaeus is described in two ways. He is both a chief tax collector. Now, you'll recall a couple of weeks ago we met a tax collector. Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. So he's like the head honcho. And not surprisingly, therefore, we're told he is wealthy. Uh, again, a couple of weeks ago we met a man who was very wealthy, a ruler, who couldn't give it away and come and follow Jesus. But the really interesting detail about Zacchaeus comes in verse 3. Uh, we are told that he wanted to see who Jesus was. Uh, don't worry about the red, I'll explain that later. But Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, who Jesus was, but because he was short, he couldn't see over the crowd. Here's the interesting fact about Zacchaeus. He is short. He is vertically challenged. Uh, and that means that when he wants to see Jesus amidst all the crowd, he knows that he's not going to be able to see, so he's forced to run ahead and he climbs a tree just to get a glimpse. Now, I'm sure all of you can work this out. If you're a chief tax collector who is very wealthy, you don't normally climb trees. Now, that's not very dignified. But clearly, Zacchaeus doesn't care what other people think of him because he knows that his big problem isn't with the horizontal, it's not with other people, his big problem is with the vertical. His problem with is, with, is with God. 
which is why he wants to see Jesus. And so he climbs up the tree and then in verse 5, when Jesus reached the spot, he looks up and says to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. There's Zacchaeus up his tree, trying to get a glimpse of Jesus. Jesus gets to the bottom of the tree. He stops and he looks up. And I presume at this point there's a dramatic pause. Uh, We're all wondering, what's he going to do? Is he going to humiliate Zacchaeus, make fun of this wealthy man perched up in the tree like a bird? Well, no, actually, incredibly, Jesus chooses to honour him. My paraphrase of verse 5, Jesus says, Hey, Zach, get down. I'm coming to your house for tea tonight. Now, imagine, if you will, that you're Zacchaeus. You're stuck up this tree. You're looking down at Jesus, who's looking up at you. And Jesus says, I'm coming over. I wonder what goes through your mind at that point. My guess is, uh, part of what goes through your mind is, uh, oh dear, I didn't do the dishes this morning before I left home, and now Jesus is coming over. But actually, you'd be ecstatic, wouldn't you? The very person who you wanted to see, who you were too short to see over the crowds, he's coming to your house. So verse 6, Zacchaeus came down at once and welcomed him gladly. The thing is, unsurprisingly, verse 7, everyone else is unimpressed, to say the least. I mean, after all, no self-respecting religious leader would ever be caught dead in a chief tax collector's house. And so you notice there what they say. Uh, Verse 7, all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. And they call out for everyone to know, in case you weren't aware, this man is a sinner. Which, of course, everyone knew, but Jesus hadn't mentioned. Now, I will very rarely do this, um, but I'm going to do do it tonight. Uh, You'll see the word there, mutter, in the NIV, the translation that we're using. It's not a very good way of translating the word in the original language. Uh, Actually, other translations here are better. They talk about the people grumbling or complaining. In fact, in the original language, the word is, pardon my Greek, the word is, like it's meant to sound really guttural and grumpy and annoyed. How could Jesus, on the one day he chooses to stop in Jericho, go to this chief tax collector's house? Well, verses 8 through 10 bring the incredible conclusion to the story. And actually, it's the big idea of the first part of this talk. It's how Jesus changes everything when you meet him. Because what we discover in verses 8 through 10 is that Zacchaeus understands he has been given a second chance in life, a fresh start, so there's no way he's going to blow it. Look at his practical responses. Verse 8, there's two of them. Firstly, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. Here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. Zacchaeus' response to Jesus showing him favour It tells us that the mark of receiving God's grace is that you cannot help but pass it on to others. I'll say it again. The mark of receiving God's grace is that you cannot help but pass it on to others. Look, Lord, here and now I give a half of everything I own to those who have less, says Zacchaeus. You know, that's the reason why Christians 
and evangelicals in particular, we have always been at the forefront of social action and social reform. The development of soup kitchens, the abolition of slavery. Uh, even, I heard recently, uh, the growth and development of the taxi industry in London in the 19th century. Do you know why that came about? It came about because Christians were concerned about single women who were trying to go home at dark uh, at night time in London. They'd be unsafe. So they devised this thing called the taxi service to make sure that they were safely transported. The mark of receiving God's grace is that you cannot help but share it with others because we understand that the vertical, our relationship with God, it always shapes the horizontal, what we think about others. And that means that if God is unexpectedly good to us, even when we don't deserve it, it changes everything about the way in which we treat other people. It means that we want the best for others as well. And to be really blunt, if we don't, it questions our attitude, not just towards them, questions our attitude towards God himself. So the first way in which meeting Jesus changes Zacchaeus' life is that he says, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. Look at the second way in which it changes, uh, verse 8 again. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And of course, in saying this, the implied assumption is that he has cheated people, which of course he has. He is a chief tax collector. He is wealthy. He got wealthy by ripping people off. Now what's really interesting is that the Old Testament law only provided that he repay people plus 20%. That's the verse there from Leviticus. Uh, if you defrauded someone, you had to repay them. You had to make restitution and you added one-fifth extra. Not for Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus says, I will repay them four times the amount because that's what meeting Jesus does. He changes everything. I guess you'd say that Zacchaeus knew what his particular sin and shortcoming was. And so I want to ask you, do you know what yours is? Do you know what is the thing that you need to repay? We'll come back to that idea later. Uh, before we do, just note there on your handout, and aside, two important clarifications about Zacchaeus and his response to Jesus coming to his house. Firstly, when Zacchaeus offers to make restitution to repay back anyone he might have defrauded, in making the offer, he's not earning Jesus' favour. Jesus has already given it when he reached out to him, when he was stuck up in the tree. Rather, Zacchaeus' response is what he does as he receives God's grace. It's not an attempt to earn it. The other important thing to notice is that, in a sense, the response that Jesus demands is different for every person. You see, Jesus doesn't tell Zacchaeus to give away all of his possessions like he did the wealthy ruler we met a couple of weeks ago. See, fundamentally, Jesus is not anti-possessions. They can be used for very good things. But what Jesus wants is our heart and our devotion. Well, see how the story wraps up then in verses 9 and 10. The final word actually is going to go to Jesus uh, with two wonderful blessings that he bestows on Zacchaeus. Have a look at verse 9. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, 
because this man too is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Two blessings that Jesus bestows on Zacchaeus. Firstly, this man too is a son of Abraham. This man too is a son of Abraham. Now, what does that mean? Why is that significant? Well, what Jesus is saying is that this man Zacchaeus, this tax-collecting traitor to the Jews, he is saying he is no longer an outcast. He is saying he is a son of Abraham as well. He is one of us because he belongs to me. And if that sounds impossible, that a man who has betrayed his countrymen might now be welcomed back, well, I think we're meant to remember John the Baptist's prophecy right back in Luke chapter 3. You see the verse there printed on your handout? This is John the Baptist speaking. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones even, God can raise up children for Abraham. So the first blessing that Jesus bestows on Zacchaeus is to say, welcome back. Welcome back into the people of Israel. But the second blessing, here's the really extraordinary one uh, from verse 9. Today, salvation has come to this house. Salvation has come to this house. Salvation has come because that's why the Son of Man has come at all. See verse 10. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And today he has brought salvation to this very house. Here's the reason why I put the word seek in red, just as I put the word wanted in red back in verse 3. It's because the word he wanted to see is actually, literally, he was seeking to see who Jesus was. The whole reason Zacchaeus came out that day and climbed up the tree, he was seeking to see Jesus. But actually in verse 10, we discover that it's Jesus who has come to seek out Zacchaeus. We're being told, I think, that this is the whole reason why Jesus was in Jericho that day. It wasn't just to pass through on his way to somewhere else. Jesus came to Jericho that he might stop and find Zacchaeus perched up his tree and ask him to come down that he might eat with him and bring salvation to his home. That's why Jesus is in in Jericho. And as an aside, for those of us who know their Old Testaments well, I, for one, can't help but think of another resident of Jericho, a lady who lived some 2,000 years before Jesus, a lady who was despised by all her countrymen, but who was rescued. Her name was Rahab. She was a prostitute. But on that day, she was saved. And here's the incredible thing. She would go on to become Jesus' great-great-great-great-great-grandmother. Salvation has come to this house. Can I say that if you're here tonight as someone who's not yet a believer, who's trying to work out who Jesus is, Can I say, we're delighted that you've joined us this evening. I'd love to invite you to join us at one of our Explore courses uh, that we run. We're about to start a series of them in March. 
Uh, these are short courses that run over a few weeks that give you a chance to come and ask any questions that you have, to read a part of the Bible, but more importantly, to try and work out who Jesus is. The reason why I want to invite you to come along to one of our Explore courses is so that you might experience what Zacchaeus experienced of salvation coming to your house. Because what this episode tells us is that Jesus is looking for you. He came to seek and save the lost. And so come and meet him today and invite him home and into your life. Well, that's the first part of the reading. Uh, It was all about this episode in Jericho. Let's move to the second part and we'll go a little quicker here. We're going to see in the second part how Jesus changes everything, not just when we meet him, but whilst we're waiting for his return. This is verses 11 through 27. Pick it up in verse 11, halfway down on the right-hand side. Whilst they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Okay, now, what's significant about these verses? Well, it reminds us that actually where Jesus is heading is Jerusalem, and though we've seen some pretty extraordinary things happen in Zacchaeus on this day, actually the action is going to take place when he gets to the capital. So, it makes us think, what ought we expect when Jesus arrives? Well, actually, the second half of verse 11 gives you a clue. It talks about how the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. It's an insight as to what was going on for them at the time. Uh, What were their cultural concerns? What were the big picture issues that affected them in their day? Now, if I were to ask you, what are the big picture concerns for us today, right here in Adelaide? Well, we'd say things like perhaps the threat of war, or maybe economic prosperity, or to state the obvious, over the last two years, our big concerns have been about medical safety, or perhaps civil liberties and freedom. But here's what they were worried about in their time. Verse 11, they thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once, that is, when Jesus got to Jerusalem. And we're going to see next week how their whole concept of the kingdom of God was actually completely misplaced. Uh, They thought it meant liberation from their hated Roman overlords. Jesus has something much bigger on view. But this week, we're going to see how their timing, their expectation about the kingdom of God was also misplaced because Jesus is going to tell them a parable that actually... The arrival of the kingdom of God is a while off and what matters is how Jesus changes everything whilst we wait for his return. What's fascinating about the parable that was told is that it's not very subtle. Jesus is actually referring deliberately to a series of historical events. And I've given you the reference there. It's a reference to Archelaus, the son of Herod the Great, who in 4 BC was required to go to Rome on the death of his father, the king, for the emperor to endorse him as the next king of Judea. The thing was that when Archelaus got to Rome, the Jews sent a delegation of 50 representatives to the emperor to say, we hate this man so much, don't make him king or else we'll be in rebellion. And the incredible thing is the emperor granted their wishes. So... Archelaus was ever only known as the ethnarch of Judea, not the king. Now, with that story in mind, let's look at the parable. Because the parable is told in two parts. 
The parable that Jesus tells is about a nobleman who goes away to get made king. That sounds familiar, right, given what happened to Archelaus. And whilst he's gone, he leaves his servants in charge of his possessions. But at the same time, there are some subjects who don't want him to be crowned the king. Both those groups illustrate the same point about how Jesus changes everything whilst we wait for his return. Now, this time I'm not going to work through all the details in the parable. Rather, I just want us to see the big picture, the big idea seen through those two groups. Firstly, the subjects and then the servants. And that's, of course, the reason why I've printed in the Bible reading the subjects are in blue, the servants are in green, to show you that Jesus is telling two interrelated stories uh, at the same time. Let's start with the subjects. The subjects who didn't want the nobleman to be made king, what's the point of them? Well, they illustrate there is no future in resisting the master. There is no future in resisting the master. His will will be done. Because you notice how Jesus calls out the subjects for what they really are. Verse 27, he calls them those enemies of mine. See, the subjects suffer the rightful and just and inevitable consequence of treason. If you stage a rebellion against the king, expect that you will suffer the consequences. And in a not very subtle way, once again, Luke is asking, do you think that Jesus is God's king? We'll see more of this next week when Jesus finally makes it to Jerusalem for his coronation. Of course, the other group in this parable are the servants. They're the ones in green. Uh, the servants, each of whom is given a, a part of the master's possessions to look after in his absence. What the servants show us is that there's actually only two ways to live. There's only one of two choices that the servants are facing. Put positively in the first two servants who use uh, the minor that they're given well, you have the prospect of commendation of a great reward for having served your master well in his absence. But put negatively, in the third servant, there is the risk of condemnation. Because ignoring the master and his commands is as bad as actively campaigning against him, like the subjects did. Well, let me just draw your attention to a couple of things about those three servants. Uh, the first is, again, it's noted there on your handout, you might be wondering what a miner is. It's a form of currency that's not particularly familiar to us. Uh, a miner was the equivalent of three months' wages. Three months' wages. A quarter of an annual salary. This is a significant amount of money that's been entrusted to them and a significant responsibility that they've been given. So what do they do with it? Well, the first two servants, we're told, they actually do very well with their miner. Uh, one turns it into ten miners, the other turns it into five. And you hear the lovely commendation that the master gives when he returns. Look at verse 17. Verse 17, well done, my good servant. I want to say that the commendation itself alone, that is great satisfaction, that is great fulfilment for a servant. Because actually, what a servant wants to do is to serve and be useful. Not to be engaged in menial tasks or pointless things. A servant wants to serve and be useful. And so the commendation, well done, my good servant, 
is the praise that they seek. Now, let me give you an illustration. Uh, towards the end of last year, I said to you that I've been watching Downton Abbey with my wife. Uh, if you've never watched Downton Abbey, can I say well done? Um, I've almost finished the last season, thankfully, all six of them. I feel like I've aged in the process because every episode, if you've ever seen Downton Abbey, every episode is incredibly slow. Nothing happens in any of them. But they're all just insights into the life between the English aristocracy and the servants who serve them. What struck me after six seasons of Downton Abbey is the portrayal of dignified and worthy service, of how wonderful it is when done well and when properly recognised. The fact that service itself can be honourable and esteemed is confirmed by the nature of the extravagant reward given to the first two servants. Did you notice? Not only do they get, well done, my good servant, but the first servant, he gets told, take charge of ten cities. And the second servant, take charge of five cities. That is, the reward is a promotion to continue to serve the master, but in an even more dignified and honourable way. Actually, as I look around here, I think most of you know what I'm talking about. Obviously, most of us here are university students. I think you know, actually, that there's something wonderful about meaningful activity as opposed to idle nothingness. I say that because you have just spent, since October, most of you on holidays, doing nothing, but now actually excited about university and all the study that you're going to have to do. Why? Because it's actually in pursuit of something honourable and something worthwhile. Can I say to those of us who are Christians here, I think this provides a challenge for us. How will we talk with our family and friends who aren't Christian about the dignity of serving the master, the desire of serving the master, and the great honour and prestige in being in his employ? How do we do that in a way that's compelling? Well, a couple of other things to note. Uh, actually, all ten servants were entrusted with exactly the same amount. They were all given one minor. But the first two, even though they were commended, they actually generated different returns. One generated ten minors, one generated five minors. I think it's reassuring to know that the master takes into account relative giftedness or ability. It's a thought we'll return to at the end. And the other thing, just let me point out, to state the obvious, the servants aren't trying to earn their master's favour as they go about using his money. It's been given to them because they're already in his service. It's telling us that service is a response, not a requirement for receiving God's grace. Well, the only other comment to make, of course, is that in this parable, we're introduced to a third servant as well, aren't we? In many ways, this feels like the focus of the passage, this third servant, who tragically can only see one side of the master. Look at verse 21. I knew you were a hard man. Uh, this third servant sadly cannot see that the master is fair. In fact, he cannot see that the master is incredibly generous. I mean, just... 
Look what he's done to the first two servants. But this third servant, he's fixated on the fact that he knows that the master demands a response. And so with this one-dimensional view of the master, it is no wonder that he is terrified. Because, and this is a vital lesson for us to learn, awareness of God's power without knowing his love will always lead to fear. I'll say it again. Awareness of God's power without knowing his love, it will always lead to fear. And as is the case of the third servant, a servant who won't even try to do his master's will is of no use to the master. And so his minor is taken away and given to another. How sad it is. For this third servant, his fear of failure means he will never know God's goodness. Once again, it's a challenge for us who are Christian. How do we talk about this with our family and friends who aren't believers? How do we talk about the seriousness of the charge that has been given each one of us? A charge that can't be ignored and yet at the same time is a great opportunity to serve with dignity in the master's employ. Well, that's the parable. Of course, the interesting thing is I've only talked about three of the servants, right? Because that's all that were mentioned. And there were ten to start with. Which means there's seven more whose response we don't know anything about. Uh, Luke doesn't tell us. Maybe as if to force us to ask, what do you think the other seven did? Or more relevantly, what would you have done? And so here's where I want to wrap up. At, uh, the, down the bottom there, what are you doing with your minor? What are you doing with your minor? You see, Jesus changes everything, both when you meet him and whilst we wait for him to return. And in a very real sense, we are just like those servants. He's given you a minor and he will demand an account. What we learn from this parable is that doing nothing and hoping for the best like the third servant did, that's not a great strategy. I mean, was he thinking that the master might somehow forget about the minor or that the master would fail in his quest to be made king and perish along the way? A few brief reflections by way of personal application. I think it's quite significant that the inevitable question of how long must we wait is never addressed. We're just told to use our minor well while we wait, as long as that might be. And so here's the really big question. What is the minor which Jesus has entrusted to you? What is the minor that Jesus has entrusted to you? Can I say that if you don't know or if you're not sure, then please don't leave today without finding out? Because it'd be a shame when the master returns and asks you to give an account for it, and all you have to say is, well, I didn't know. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what you wanted me to do with it. Because as we saw in the third servant's case, that's not a great strategy. What is your minor? What has Jesus given you? Well, actually, it's everything that you have. Because everything you have has been loaned to you by the master. And that means that everything that we have is held on trust for him 
and will need to give an account to him when he eventually returns. There's all sorts of different ways in which I could highlight that for you. I could ask you, what are the, what's your most valuable possession? What's the thing that you are most proud of or most dear to you? Maybe it's your bank account or your share portfolio. Maybe it's a car you've renovated or a dream house. Maybe it's your time. Maybe it's a keepsake or a souvenir. Maybe it's your talents and all your abilities. But what is it for you? What is your minor? Because what matters is not whether you use it for your own use. What matters is how it benefits the master. That's all that servants get judged on. That's the reason why we prayed earlier tonight, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because the wonderful thing is that when the master's will is done, we servants also rejoice. So here's my final thought. What others do with their minor actually is entirely irrelevant to you. What others do with their minor is entirely irrelevant to you. In particular, what if others seem to do more with their minor than what you do with yours? I want to finish with this point because I commented earlier that the first two servants, who one produced ten, one produced five, both are well rewarded. They clearly had different results because they had different abilities, different opportunities, different capabilities. But both were commended for their efforts. Which tells us, I think, that what Jesus is looking for is the best of intentions, not perfect results. I think that's a great relief. It's a great relief to all of us who are less able, less competent, less talented, who have fewer opportunities than others. It's a great reassurance that our master is not just a hard man, but a kind and compassionate one as well. This came home to me a number of years ago when I spent some time with a meeting with a godly Christian woman of the, a member of this church who'd been beset by chronic fatigue syndrome for nearly 20 years. Hadn't managed to get out of bed in that entire time. And I remember thinking, what is it that she can do to serve the Lord? She told me that each day she can pray. That's enough. A little while ago, I bumped into a cousin of mine uh, lives in another city and she's a Christian. She goes to a church and I asked her to tell me about her church and what it was like. What she said has stuck with me ever since. Uh, she told me, thankfully, I think, but above all with pride, here's what she said. She said, my church never makes me feel guilty for all the ministry I'm unable to do. My church never makes me feel guilty. What I want for you to hear every time you come to our church is of the grace and the freedom and the favour that Jesus pours out. Actually, what I really want you to hear are those wonderful words, well done, my good servant, so that when the master does return, it will be the best moment of your life, not the worst. You see, because looking for his return ought to make us excited, not afraid. If I can finish with this thought, in this passage, did you notice, twice as many servants are commended as are condemned? That's how good our master is.